Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know, when people want to force action or bring attention to a big cause, sometimes they'll strike. You'll know workers go on strike for better pay. Students might strike for climate change action. But have you heard of a birth strike? Because right now in one country, there are women refusing to have babies because they're tired of not having the same rights as men. Is it going to work? We're going to have the story of that population crisis coming up. It's very interesting. Also, later, you're going to learn more about sweat than you ever thought you needed to know. Why? Keep listening to find out. First, though. Hack. Labor seems more afraid of the coal and gas corporations than climate collapse. On Triple J. So for weeks, we've been telling you about a big government climate policy, the safeguard mechanism. Horrible name, but we've tried to explain it all to you. How Labor and the Greens have been locked in negotiations to figure out a way to put emissions limits on Australia's biggest polluters. There's a big breakthrough today. The government's got a deal. After months, the Greens have agreed to it on the condition that there is a hard cap on emissions to make sure that emissions are going to be forced down. There are still questions, though, that people have about how this is going to work because the climate change minister, Chris Bowen, kind of flagged today that he may amend rules to amend the cap. And the Greens didn't get everything they were asking for. So what does that all mean? Well, the minister wasn't available to speak with Hack, but Greens leader Adam Bant is with us now. Adam Bant, thanks for coming on, Hack. Thanks for having me. To be clear, you went into these negotiations wanting to stop all new coal and gas projects. That hasn't happened. Could the Greens have held out for a stronger deal? Look, the UN Secretary-General and the world scientists have all said that the science requires countries like Australia to stop opening coal and gas projects. The government said at the start they weren't interested in that. Now, after uh, several months of hard pushing and hard negotiations, including big campaigns from student strikers and people on the street, we've managed to get the government to uh, stop about half of the projects that are in the pipeline. That's after nine months of this new parliament. And now in the rest of this parliament, we're going to be coming after the rest. So from, from a government that now wants to keep opening more, we've also, under this legislation, given the government the power to knock back new coal and gas mines if they're going to lift pollution above this hard cap. So from here on in, any new coal and gas mine that gets opened will be squarely on Labor's shoulders. But I just want to be clear with what the Greens have managed to negotiate here because we know that independents, Allegra Spender, Zali Stegall, David Pocock, who holds the balance of power in the Senate, they've also been pushing the government for an absolute cap, a hard cap. So it's not just the Greens that have made this happen, right? Well, quite a few people have put this idea on the table and the Greens, of course, uh, are in balance of power in the Senate and without the Greens, the government doesn't get this done. And so we pushed hard for Labor to stop opening new coal and gas mines and, as I say, of the half that have been in the... Uh, in the pipeline through the hard cap on pollution that we've managed to introduce. Uh, of the 116, about half of those aren't going ahead. And um, the rest we're now going to fight. We've now got new tools to fight those. Um, there's going to be a pollution trigger for the first time, which means that every new project has to be assessed by the Minister to see whether it's going to be uh, going to put pollution up. And if that looks likely... 
they can be stopped. That's what the Greens have secured and we welcome ideas from others that have been put into the mix but in those negotiations that's what we've secured and so for everyone who's worried about the climate crisis or uh, worried about their future or their kids or their grandkids future or has been to a climate rally to demand that action be taken today you should have a spring in your step because it shows that we can take on the coal and gas corporations and we can win um, we've got a chunk of the way there as a result of these amendments the Greens have secured but there's still more to do and now we've got to keep fighting. But can you explain how the cap's going to work because if I'm not wrong the Minister still has the power to change the cap at any time. No, the, uh, the, it'll be in legislation that pollution can't be higher uh, than where it is now and in fact has to come down and so uh, what's going to happen is that every time there's a new project on the horizon the, uh, the, you have to have a look at how much pollution that's going to put into the atmosphere and if it's going to um, lift pollution above where it is at the moment, i.e. force pollution to go above the cap or to keep rising, then the Minister's got to take action and the powers they've got could include stopping that project. So it's um, it, not something that can be changed by the Minister. It's in the legislation and now by law pollution will have to come down. And if a future Minister lets pollution go up and doesn't do anything about it, then they'll be breaking the law. So if there's a new government that comes in down the road, they cannot... Uh, reduce the cap, as has been in the past, like under Tony Abbott, for instance, where big businesses were getting exemptions and those sorts of things, you're saying that's not going to be able to happen? That's right. It's in the law. So, And this is one of the significant things. The government um, wanted to just say, look, there's actually going to be no real cap. Pollution can keep on going up. And uh, as long as you buy a few offset permits and tree planting on the other side of the country, you can pollute as much as you want. We change that. This new hard cap that will be in there that says pollution um, can't be higher than it is at the moment and has to start coming down puts a limit on coal and gas expansion in this country. They're not These coal and gas corporations won't be able to buy permits to offset their way and try and get them by themselves out of this cap. It'll be in law. And what about there were um, new coal and gas projects in the pipeline that you say are going to be going to have to go? Like some of those, half of those. How do you how do you predict that? What are you using to base that on? Well, we know from government figures there's 116 coal and gas projects in the pipeline, and when you add up all the total pollution from those between now and 2030, and you look at how much the Greens have stopped now by stopping uh, pollution from this area rising. It works out at about half of the pollution of the, the, these 116 new coal and gas projects would have put into the air. And, of course, um, that's not just pollution here in Australia. The coal or the gas gets burned overseas and there's even more pollution. And Australia's the third largest exporter of fossil fuel pollution in the world. So stopping coal and gas mines here has a big effect for the whole planet. The Greens, or you were saying earlier that the Greens are still going to be fighting with the community uh, involved in trying to stop new projects. I mean, that sounds very much like direct action. And I'm wondering, wh why is that necessary? If you've secured such a good deal, why would you need direct action? Because Labor wants to keep opening new coal and gas mines. I mean, it's beyond us why uh, they won't listen to what the science has said and the UN Secretary General, who's given a final warning just last week and has said, look, w this is the uh, time to act and the decisions that we make now about coal and gas mines will have ramifications for generations to come. Um, we've managed to drag uh, the government to swallow 
uh, a dose of reality and to uh, put a cap on pollution going up. So that puts a limit on how many new coal and gas mines they can open. But there's still a bunch more that Labor wants to open and we're going to fight those um, mine by mine together with the community, together with people in the streets because what's clear out of all of this is that Labor won't listen to the science unless the people make them. And just last question, you said negotiating with Labor is like negotiating with the political wing of the coal and gas companies and it seems like they're more afraid of coal and gas than climate collapse. What gives you faith then that the government is not going to take actions to submit to these big companies in the future? People power is what we need and today shows that uh, after the last federal election when people voted in record numbers to put uh, for climate action and put people in parliament to who would take on the coal and gas corporations that you're able to take on the coal and gas corporations and their lobbyists and mouthpieces in parliament and win now we need to do more though we absolutely need to do more but today shows that people power can beat the big corporations in parliament and can get results um, but we know that there's more to do if we do it to give ourselves the best chance of having a safe climate and we've got to make the government more afraid of people than they are the big corporations. Greens leader Adam Bant, thanks for joining us on Hack. Thanks very much. And we got a lot of comments coming through on the text line, a lot of people supportive of what the Greens have agreed to here. Someone saying climate action is a global issue though. What's the point in capping Australian projects when the government's exporting record amounts of coal overseas? Another person says stopping coal and gas in Australia only stops Aussie jobs. Overseas countries will just buy it from somewhere else. Heaps of opinions. There'll be more details on this policy, exactly what it means in the weeks ahead. We'll keep you across it. After 12 years in opposition, the people of New South Wales have voted for a fresh start. On Triple J. So we're going to stick with politics for a minute because in case you missed it over the weekend, every part of mainland Australia now has a Labor government. Tassie doesn't, but mainland Australia... New South Wales voted out Dominic Perrottet, deciding to give the ALP another go after 12 years in opposition. And it means, like I said, Tasmania has the only Liberal government in the country. But how's that going to impact Australian politics generally on a national scale? Like, does it make things a lot easier for the Prime Minister? Does Anthony Albanese get to boss all the other states around? Let's find out. Let's get into it with an expert. Dr Maria Taflaga is a political scientist. She's the director of ANU's Australian Politics Studies Centre. Dr Taflaga, thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you. Did this election result in New South Wales surprise you or is it what analysts, experts were predicting? Look, I mean, it's always difficult for a government that has had three terms to be re-elected. People grow fatigued of governments and it's not as if there weren't some specific challenges, you know, facing uh, the state and facing the Liberal Party. And the Premier Dominic Perrottet certainly took a few policy risks, which around his sort of gambling initiative or his land tax initiative. I do think the sort of, I guess, the degree of the sort of swing was perhaps a little bit surprising uh, when you kind of sort of consider it with all the sort of lead in the saddlebags you know, an old government losing an election in this way, it's not that surprising. Is it rare to be in this situation we're in now where we've got one party in power at a federal level, Labor, but also Labor in power in almost every state and territory except Tassie, of course? 
Uh, last time this happened was in 2007 from memory, and that was actually even worse for the, the Liberal Party then. Um, then the highest ranked elected Liberal was the Mayor of Brisbane, which was Campbell Newman, uh, who then went on to become Premier uh, of, of a one-term uh, Liberal National um, Government. So, yes, I mean, it is um, rare, and part of that's to do with, if you think about it, there's a couple of things going on. Like one is just the, the longevity of, of governments. Um, you know, governments generally run out of uh, energy after about 10 years and it's good for the system to actually alternate between government and opposition because we do have, generally speaking, really strong majorities. Australia is generally not good at alternating governments. We keep them one term too long and they don't always do a good job. And sometimes they do a terrible job in that in that last term. So so there's that. But there's also, I suppose, sort of a bigger cycles that are going on. Um, and we seem to be kind of reaching a, an important kind of crux point in what we sort of think about as a sort of big overarching policy paradigm. And the last time that we were sort of at this position would have been in the 1980s. People are sort of searching around for a new way for the state to imagine what the good life looks like and how it's going to respond and the sort of previous orthodoxy, you know, which was a market-based orthodoxy, has come under a great deal of pressure and the right in Australia has sort of struggled to come up with its version of what this looks like and the, and the left at the moment is winning elections uh, with, with their preferred fairly modest alternative model. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Dr Maria Taflaga from the Australian Politics Studies Centre about the impact of Labor's win in New South Wales over the weekend. Um, Maria, I'm wondering, like, people have seen all the maps showing the big Labor wave and red in every state and territory except Tasmania, and it looks very dramatic. Does it actually matter that much for the Prime Minister, for instance? Will it make his job a lot easier having another Labor Premier, or does it really not actually affect him too much at all? Uh, I think people like to think that having the, everyone of the same ideological stripe will somehow mean that reforms get through that might not have otherwise. But, I mean, I'm a bit sceptical of this. There's a sort of saying, you know, never get in, in the way of a Premier and a bucket of money. Um, and that's because of the sort of structural um, kind of problem that underpins our federation, right? And it's actually important people understand this. The states are the ones that have to deliver all the services. They used to have income taxing powers. They gave those away in World War II to, you know, fight a world war and they never got them back. And the federal government collects all of that money and therefore has a sort of role in the service delivery areas that they never envisaged. So they have all the money, but they can't actually do anything. The states have to do everything. And so this is my way of saying that it might help if everyone is from the Labor side, but that doesn't actually mean that their interests align, right? So a state premier is held to a different set of accountability criteria to the prime minister. And whilst they might have an easier time coming to a form of ideological agreement on what that path forward is, that doesn't mean that the interest of who's going to pay and who's going to deliver these services are, are resolved. They all need to be negotiated anyway. And what was really interesting about Dominic Perrottet, whether you liked him or you didn't like him, was that he, he was quite rare 
for a political leader anywhere, to be blunt. Um, he was prepared to take risks on policy. Um, you know, he had a, a, a sort of, um, he was prepared to experiment and he was actually prepared to to make deals with uh, ideological foes in 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 helping put forward uh, policy agendas that he wanted to see. And so we saw that with the embrace of uh, the climate agenda in New South Wales. We saw the, the sort of the, the several deals that he struck with Dan Andrews and his move on land tax, which was a, an economically rational thing to do in the sense of it's good for the simplicity of the tax system, but politically very challenging. So Perrottet was probably the most likely Liberal Premier to actually be able to cut deals and to move agendas forward with the Albanese government. And it's not necessarily the case that just because a Labor Premier has been elected that the Labor government will necessarily be able to make more progress just because they are both from the Labor Party. Political scientist Dr Maria Tafaga, thanks so much for joining us on The Hack. My pleasure. Hack. On Triple Jack. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what'll happen over the next few months with this new government in New South Wales. Let's see how much cooperation there will be between state and federal politicians. Hack. People normally think that women should take care of kids mainly. We have to work inside and outside. On Triple Jack. I don't know whether you've heard about this, but South Korea's in a massive population crisis. Like, the birth rate in South Korea is plummeting year after year. It's the lowest of any country in the world. Young people don't want to have kids, young women in particular. And there are a few reasons behind that, but some reckon it's got a lot to do with women's rights in South Korea, the gender pay gap, how women are treated in the workplace, at home. Some women are so fed up that they're on a birth strike. They're refusing to have kids. Let's find out more about this. Ha Won Jung has been exploring feminism in South Korea. She's actually written a book called Flowers of Fire, the inside story of South Korea's feminist movement. She's with us now. Ha Won Jung, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Why did you decide that it was important to write this book? Well, well, first of all, to answer that question, i just like to ask you one question. When you think about South Korea, what's the first thing that pops up in your mind? If I think of South Korea, I would think K-pop, technology, pop culture. They're the things that I uh, that first pop into my mind. Yep, that's correct. Uh, you are not alone. I mean, global conversations about or news about South Korea outside the country have been dominated by the topics like geopolitics or military confrontations with North Korea, technologies. But if you actually look at the lives of ordinary South Koreans on the ground and the conversations they are having, and a lot of the conversations among ordinary South Koreans have been dominated by this uh, one topic called gender issues. And that was partly the result of a very powerful wave of feminist movement that has swept South Korea for the past few years. South Korea had a, a very robust wave of Me Too movement in 2018 onwards. And as a result, women kind of started to speak out against the uh, gender discrimination or sexual harassment or sexual assault that were happening in work, uh, workplaces or even in school at a magnitude that had not been seen before. And they brought down a lot of powerful men. 
So this is really interesting. What you're describing is a very robust, strong Me Too movement in South Korea that uh, women were talking about these issues. But what we're seeing now, it seems, is this big anti-feminist movement in South Korea. What's caused that then? How has that come about? Well, the thing is that South Korea is still is a very conservative country where women, uh, which whose uh, records on women's status in society have been uh, lagging behind in uh, compared to a lot of advanced countries. For instance, the country has has reported the uh, the widest gender pay gap among the OECD member nations. Uh, we are still have we still have a long way to go to teach this concept of gender equality or how to promote this concept to a lot of young you know, the growing young generations. And especially the things have become a lot more difficult for the past year when the South Korean president Yoon Suk-yeol rose to power. And since then, the South Korean government even decided to remove the words gender equality or even the references to the uh, sexual minorities from school textbooks. So there have been a lot of worries and concerns about the uh, in this climate, how are we going to teach the uh, concept of gender equality to the uh, to the children when the, the government even decided to remove the word itself from the school textbook. Uh, nearly 80% of South Korean men in their 20s believe that they are the victims of gender discrimination. That's extraordinary. And so 80% or nearly 80% of South Korean men in their 20s say they see themselves as the victim of gender discrimination. How on there's been a big focus on the declining birth rate in South Korea for many years, obviously, in South Korea, but uh, globally, there's a lot of attention on that at the moment. And lots of reasons are given for that. Cost of living, changing attitudes towards family. Um, you say part of it is a birth strike by women. Can you explain that, exactly what's going on and how women are viewing this? And for those who don't know very well uh, about the situation in South Korea, South Korea has been reported the, uh, the lowest fertility rate in the world for three years in a row now. If you see a lot of surveys about the willingness to have children or to give birth, always, almost always women are far more reluctant to have children or tie the knots than men. And in a lot of surveys, women cite gender equality ingrained in the country's family life or workplaces as major reasons that made them decide to not to have child, uh, not to have children or to get married to begin with. So if you see all this, the right question to ask is not why are not the women having babies, more like why would they want to want to have babies or to get married given all these circumstances? You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with writer Hawon Jung about her new book called Flowers of Fire. It's titled The Inside Story of South Korea's Feminist Movement. So given the government in South Korea is saying we need to do something about this declining birth rate, we need to turn it around, we have to invest money, attention into this, is this birth strike by women going to work? Like, will they be able to force the government to listen to women, to the issues that they're facing and make some serious changes? That remains to be seen. 
So far, South Korean government has been spending billions of dollars of money to encourage more uh, young people to get married and have children. But a lot of women I talked to said no amount, of, no amount of government subsidy or cash assistance will make them change their mind unless the government or society in general changes the way they see the, the uh, traditional role of women, like for instance, unless they toughen the punishment against uh, companies that discriminate against working moms. Hoan, for all of the young Australians listening to you right now, listening maybe for the first time about the situation for women in South Korea, what would you like them to take away from this and learn from your country? Well, part of the reason that I wrote this book is that although there have been this robust wave of feminist movements in South Korea or even in, in, in Asia, and women have been fighting really vigorously to change this uh, patriarchal culture in their own countries. But their stories seem to be relatively unknown and you know, untold in the West. And global conversations about gender equality or feminist movements seem to be relatively focused on what's happening in the West. So my hope was that maybe my book can make a small contribution to help people in the West understand how women in this part of the world are fighting and are changing, are trying to change male-dominated culture in every aspect of, of their lives. Well, look, it's a brilliant book. It's so beautifully written. It's called Flowers of Fire. It's uh, out now. Writer Hwan Jung, thank you so much for joining us on Hack. Thank you for having me. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, like I said, Hoan's book, Flowers of Fire, is out now. Really, really interesting read. Hack. Our sweat really smells a little bit different when we are afraid as compared to when we are sexually aroused. On Triple J. Ah, sweat. We all do it. Maybe you're doing it right now. We know sweat can be powerful. It can stop someone from sitting next to you on public transport, for example. But could it also help reduce social anxiety? Hear me out, because some researchers in Sweden say there are these molecules in sweat that could help people with social anxiety better respond to therapy. I do not understand how this works, really, but I want to find out. Christian Morrow is an Associate Professor of Science and Medicine at Bond University, and he's with us now. Hey, Christian, thanks for coming on, Hack. Thank you. Good to be here. What are these researchers saying? Why would the molecules in sweat help us respond better to therapy for anxiety? So, look, there's two different kinds of sweat glands that we have. The first are called eccrine, and this this is the sweat that cools us down, what we usually think about. This is all over our body. A lot of these glands are in our palms and soles of our feet, in our head, and these are the ones that cool us down. There's another sweat gland called apocrine gland, and we're not fully sure what they do. And these are the glands that are particularly around our underarms and genital regions. So these are the ones that actually give you BO and make you smell. And it sort of secretes, rather than just water like the eccrine ones secrete, is mostly water, they secrete this fatty sort of substance. And the substance feeds bacteria in our underarms and genital regions, and that would, that's what gives us BO, um, our body odour. And it's quite interesting. So we basically are making food for bacteria, which can then emit a smell. And what that smell does, we're not fully sure. Um, there's a bit of research out there saying it helps with attraction, that you smell other people and can smell attraction. There's this research here that maybe if someone else around you is stressed or is emitting some smells, it can help you a little bit. If you're anxious, smelling someone else's um, sweat can help a little bit, but we're not fully sure how it works. Right, okay. I mean, it's still early days. There's a lot more research to be done, I guess, and this is just um, one study that uh, some researchers have got into. People might have heard a bit about um, pheromones, you know, the chemical secretion 
secretions we make that other humans respond to. Are there a lot of pheromones we don't know about? Yeah, well, there's a lot of difference. So why do we smell different? The bacteria that's on us is usually pretty consistent between humans, but the actual concentrations of fat that we release and concentrations of different chemicals in these apocrine glands can be a part of genetics. What we eat as well, we eat a lot of red meat, for example, that can change certain smells. And even then, the menstrual cycle and hormones. So you've actually, when they do tests, people, they tend to find when you pair up males and females, that females tend to smell better to certain males at certain <laughs> times of the month. And we know this is big in um, in the animal kingdom, where, for example, a dog can present that it's on heat or ready to be uh, or more fertile. In humans, it doesn't seem to matter as much. It's like an old remnant from the past or some kind of animalistic instinct. And we don't fully know why it happens, why it's different, why we smell different during menstrual cycle or certain things. Um, And either way, humans are a lot more visual. You don't need to smell someone to know that you're attracted to them, whereas dogs and deer and some other animals do. They they have a lot more of that smell. They can smell their mate. Interesting. Um, So. And just mm. and just quickly, like when do we sweat? Because we obviously know we do it after exercise, maybe when we're feeling nervous, but do we sweat at other times as well? Well, this is a thing that um, the apocrine, so the eccrine sweat is there to cool us down. The apocrine under the arm actually tends to help around puberty. We don't really have BO when we're children. So we tend to start having them more active um, at about puberty, but then also we sweat more, we sweat more when we're stressed. We sweat more with caffeine. So some medications can make us sweat more. So there's actually a lot of things as well that even if it's not you know hot to cool us down, we can actually have that that sort of chemical and, and create that that body odor without realizing it. And maybe it's just what you've consumed or medications or caffeine or other things. Very, very interesting stuff. Didn't realize I'd be so into sweat. I absolutely am now, thanks to you, Christian Morrow from Bond University. Thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thank you. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.